This is Mental Health and You with WCPA. We're your hosts, Taylor Kennedy, Caitlin Schaefer, and Jacqueline Simplecamp. Our podcast covers mental health topics for you. From us, licensed mental health professionals. Let's get to this week's episode. Welcome back to Mental Health and You. Thanks for joining us for our episode today. Like we mentioned last week, we are excited to have one of our therapists from the office with us. Taylor, do you want to introduce him? Yes. With us today, we have Tony Tremelli. Tony is a therapist at WCPA and is going to share a little bit about men in the mental health world. And we think you all are really going to love his perspective on this topic. Tony, we are so glad to have you with us today. Could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and the population that you work with? Of course. And first, I want to thank you guys for having me on. I'm really excited to be a part of this process. I've been listening to your podcast um, up until now, and it's a really cool opportunity for me um, to be here with you. Um, So I've been with West County Psychological Associates for about eight years now. Um, I actually did my internship with West County Psychological right out of my master's program and then started working with them right after that. So West County Psychological Associates is really the only practice that I've ever known. Um, I've had a really great opportunity here to grow as an individual and as a therapist. I began my practice um, at the beginning of my work here, predominantly working with children and adolescents and their families. Um, Over the years, my practice has grown and I now work with a really wide variety of different clientele. You know, like a lot of our therapists here, I see children, teenagers, adults, um, older adults, couples. I do some family therapy work as well. So yeah, that's really me and the work that I do here at West County Psychological. Thank you for sharing that, Tony. You are a awesome part of this and we're so glad to have you as a colleague. Um, So a large part of our podcast focuses on destigmatizing mental health and sharing about what makes us feel passionate about this topic. So we're wondering, Tony, why are you passionate about mental health? Well, I think my passion for mental health really, like many of us, I think, started with my own struggles, uh, my own suffering and my mental health. So as I was in college, you know, in an attempt, I think, to figure out some of my own issues, I began to take some psychology classes, really just curious as to if, you know, I could figure out what was behind some of my behaviors, some of my struggles. And I really fell in love with it there, just getting a better understanding of you know, human behavior and the way people operate helped me come to a little bit more clarity on why it was that I was maybe going through some of the things that I was going through. And once I finished college, I really had this desire to get to this place as quickly as I possibly could, right? What is the fastest route to get in a room with a client doing therapy? I'd also found a tremendous amount of success in my own therapy at that time. So I really was passionate in sort of being able to flip that, taking what I had learned, taking my own experiences, my own struggles, and helping others with theirs. So like I think a lot of therapists, it really started with a curiosity and an interest in my own work led me down this path of mental health. And now really years later... I have seen, you know, just having all of the maybe hundreds of clients that I've had up until this point, I really do feel like I am making a difference. And I think that really adds to the passion 
I've always been a person that wanted to affect change in this world. So I spent a lot of time thinking about contemplating, reflecting on how I was going to go about doing that. So the macro level change felt for most of my life was beyond me. But if I could help individuals, I really do think that I can affect change in the world. So that's the way I've approached that. Yeah, Tony, that's a great way to put it. And I think you're right. I think a lot of us as therapists kind of have our own background that kind of led us to the field and being passionate about it. But with that said, a lot of the field of therapists are women. And so it's just kind of common knowledge, I think, as a therapist, or maybe people who are looking for a therapist find that commonly there's more women as therapists than men. So will you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a male therapist? Yeah, it's interesting. I really didn't realize that until I was in my first class in grad school. I was one of two men in my program. I'm sorry, I was one of three men. I was one of two that actually made it through the program. Um, And then obviously getting to West County Psychological Associates, we only have one other male therapist. So it quickly became clear to me that this is a field that is relatively dominated by women. Um, So it was a sort of a hurdle at the beginning to get past that and to become comfortable and secure in, you know, classrooms and in a practice that was, you know, I was sort of the outlier. I was the the minority in that group. Yeah, but being a, being a male in a female-dominated industry, I think has actually been a really positive experience for me. I think there are so many clients out there when they are researching, when they're thinking about therapy, and they go on to whatever resource they're using to find that person or asking for referrals, if it is, if what they are looking for is a man, just having you know that ability to, to provide that service for them um, has been really important in my practice. Yeah, I think being a male therapist is a niche in itself because I experienced something similar in grad school, except we had no males in my cohort in my program. So I think for a lot of young men and really just men in general, they're looking for that male therapist. Like, yeah, some may want a female, but I just think having that option in our practice especially is really helpful to kind of reach more clients in itself. Yeah, I think definitely. And especially for, you know, adolescent males and young adults, they may really prefer um, having a male therapist and just being able to to provide that for them, I think is really important. That's Mm -hmm. so true. And it's kind of interesting to think about how maybe this whole stigma around male mental health even plays a role in some men not joining the profession. I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. I mean, there was there was a time not too long ago when psychiatry, for example, was dominated by men. Right. There has been an evolution here. And I think as you know, it's sort of an education too. We are seeing less male teachers. We are seeing less male therapists. And I really do think it's a problem. So destigmatizing mental health, you know, and that's what you guys are trying to do with that podcast, I hope does lead more young men to, you know, open up to the idea of this as a path that they could take. You know, in my own work with young men, you know, I've had a number of times in the past where, you know, after working with somebody, um, an adolescent, a high school student for a long time, you know, as they're going into college, they're really considering psychology and a path and counseling as an option. They wouldn't be thinking that. They wouldn't see that as a possibility if not for the therapy that they had been in. So I think just in that way, we're opening it up a little bit, destigmatizing in a way. Maybe in 10 years, we will see more men in this field. And I hope we do. I think it's really important. Yeah, I do too. 
So that's kind of a great lead into our next question for you. What role do you notice men playing in the world of mental health? Well, like we've said, I think right now it's there's a lack of it, certainly. Um, I think it's an important role. We need to, I think men in mental health, first we need to destigmatize men seeking mental health, mm-hmm. um, which I think is something that we've made a little progress in, but I think there's still a lot of work to do in that regard. We've seen a destigmatization in mental health, I think, universally in this country, more people are seeking therapy. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. But men certainly lag women in that regard. So the more that we can do to get men to open up to the idea of therapy and really understand that this is something that they can pursue without any judgment or any shame or any feelings of embarrassment, the more we're going to do to push that along. I think that's that's a really good point that you make, Tony. When asked what role they play, it's more of the lack thereof right now. I feel like destigmatizing and normalizing is definitely all in an effort to have their representation grow, right? So that they have a larger representation in the world of mental health. I think it's extremely important in general so humanity can continue to grow and evolve. 100%. We definitely just want everyone to feel like they can express themselves. So I think that's kind of what it comes down to, right? Societally, men are kind of, they're supposed to push their feelings down and feel strong, all these quote unquote, you know, shoulds. But at the end of the day, we're all human. We all have feelings and we want to make sure that we're all able to express them. So Tony, tell me a little bit, do you think there is a stigma about male mental health? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's a stigma about male mental health, and we can see that just in the data, right? We talked a little Mm -hmm. bit about the lack of representation in the profession in mental health, but we also know that, you know, our clients are far less likely to be men than they are to be women. There is a belief, I think, among many males that seeking therapy um, is a sign of weakness, right? Men are conditioned to believe that they are, it is their responsibility to figure out things on their own, right? They're supposed to have the answers. To seek help, it would be a sign to them of weakness, right? So they're much less likely to ask for the help. Oftentimes, men who end up in therapy are being prodded, are being pushed, are being mandated to do so. It is less likely that they are coming to the conclusion on their own that they need to seek help and reaching out for it. And that's really, I think, an important piece to to think about and to try to break down a little bit. I know, like I've said, my own suffering led me to therapy, right? And the insight that I gained, the work that I was able to do, the progress that I made in that therapy room was profound. And the the more men that can experience that, to come to understand what therapy is and how helpful it can be, I think can do a whole lot for our culture. Yeah, I think you mentioned a few points that I want to pull out. So the first one, I think you spoke to toxic toxic masculinity because societally we say like, oh, boys don't cry, tough it up, other worse things probably. And that alone, I think, makes it difficult to go seek help. And then the second piece that you said that I want to note is discussing how young men a lot of the time I think adolescents too they're forced to come into therapy it's their parents idea or legally they have to go do it and it's not their own choice and I think in the therapeutic process if they can find an own internal reason to work on themselves and get more comfortable with that then it can be helpful but I do think there's a lot of resistance and that's not entirely their fault that's a really good point 
I've noticed so many like spouses drag their partner or like domestic relationships, like, oh, you're going to come. And then the husband's super resistant or adolescents, right? Like the males, like my mom thinks I need this. My dad thinks I need this. But really it all goes back to Tony, what you were kind of saying about like gender roles and identity and those social norms that we put in place as little kids, like shake it off. You're okay. Like you're strong. Like you got this. You're going to be tough. You're going to be, you know, all of these perceptions that we put into their head. So then when we want them to do something super vulnerable, like focusing on their emotions and sensitive areas of their life, they're like, wait, this is outside of what a man should, right? Should be like, which is hard. Absolutely. And that's a real, you know, part of the work, especially with a resistant client or somebody who is not well versed in in being vulnerable, who's, you know, been conditioned to believe that vulnerability is a weakness, which is something Mm -hmm. I think we really need to work strongly against too, because vulnerability is such a strength. You know, if there's that resistance, part of the therapeutic process is going to be breaking that down, allowing them to feel safe and to feel comfortable in engaging in that sort of work. And I think it can be done. It's just, it makes, you know, a resistant client, you guys know, is always a more challenging client to work with because there's a bridge that has to be built first. Um, that relationship, that trust, that's what needs to come first in the therapeutic process. Yeah, it's tough when we have clients who come in and um, it's maybe not their will, right? It's not voluntary. And as therapists, something that we learn early on in our career and our schooling is that the most effective therapy is done when the client is open to change, when they're open to working on, you know, their presenting problems. And so I totally agree with you, Tony, when there's that, you know, hesitancy and building that we have to start with just getting to know one another and building that trust. Right. It like gets them in a position to be ready to be vulnerable and do that work. But some of them don't come in ready and we have to meet them where they're at. And if they're not ready to dive in just then, then, yeah, we have to build the bridge and set the foundation so that in future sessions they will be ready to work. Yeah. And I think it's not unusual. I I don't think many clients are really ready Mm -hmm. um, to, you know, they may have a presenting problem, right, that they're coming into therapy to talk about or work through. But therapy is a lot deeper than that, right? There's there's always more work to be done um, than just what the presenting problem is. I've found in the therapy, you know, oftentimes I think it's it, it can be sort of crisis management. And once we're finished with the crisis, the therapy is over. Part of our work is is getting past that and sort of getting our clients to buy into this um, truth is that there is there's something deeper going on here. And if we don't resolve that, inevitably there will be another crisis that we have to manage. So while certain clients may be more you know, ready or willing to come in, there's always that work to be done um, of getting to those underlying emotions and issues that they may be struggling with. Yeah, we want this to be a lifelong journey, not just a Band-Aid. But let's think about this. So Tony, in your personal and professional opinion, what do you notice men struggling with the most? I think it it differs for different populations that I'm working with. So I think maybe it would be helpful to break down, you know, what as I see as some of the most common issues that men are dealing with throughout maybe the lifespan. Because like I said, I'm working with children, I'm working with adolescents and young adults Mm -hmm. and older adults as well. The presenting issue that I'm seeing, you know, most commonly um, present in therapies, especially over this past year in children and adolescents is certainly anxiety. Um, We have seen an increase in anxiety 
across all age groups in our population, but most severely, I think, within our children and our adolescents. So I'd say that, you know, that's the number one presenting issue for the younger clients that I work with. I work a lot with young adults, um, you know, between ages of 18 and 25. And I'd say for those young men, the, the real struggle tends to be around this issue of like, what is next for me, right? Yeah. What is it that I truly want to do? Right. So we talk a lot about this launching period, right? This this late adolescence, early adulthood, when young men for the first time are really presented with that. And for a lot of them, I've come to realize that it's something that many of them have never really considered up until that point. All along, they've been on this track, been on this journey that's been sort of laid out for them very clearly, very succinctly, step by step. This is what you do. There's been these authority figures in their lives all along telling them exactly what to do, where to be, when to be there and how to do it. And for the first time in their life, you know, it's sort of opened up and they really do now have this newfound agency and choice. And for the first time, they're actually considering what is it that I actually want to do? Many of them struggle because their answer is not clear. The deeper question is, who am I? You know, like what drives me? Yeah. What am I passionate about? What am I motivated by? So that's really one of the issues that I really enjoy working on is getting young men and young women, but most of my clients are young men um, in that age range to really start thinking about those profound questions of what it is that they want to do and how can we get them there? That's not an easy process because, like I said, many of them have never really considered it before. But that sort of work I really, really love to do. And I even see that in some of my older clients as well. You know, some of my middle-aged male clients who, for whatever various reasons, really never had the opportunity to, to ask themselves what it is that I really want. You know, their path sort of was laid out until, you know, the traditional one being, and the one I see most often is, you know, you graduate high school, you go to college and you get a job. And now we're at middle age and they're coming to the rec, call it a midlife crisis, call it whatever you want. That has a negative connotation and I don't think it should, but they're at this place in their life and they're wondering, do I want to stay on this same path or do I want to consider something different? So that work, I really, really love doing. So I'd say for, you know, like I said, different age groups, different presenting issues, Anxiety, I think we can see in all of our ages, especially this past year. But some of the other issues around what it is that I truly want, you know, what path do I want to take? Um, where am I going to find contentment and peace and, and fulfillment in life? Those are the issues that I see most often. It sounds like a lot of it, and I mean, you touched on this, is really connecting with that inner sense of self and learning who I am, what I want, and not what I want for other people, right? Not for mom, dad, your partner, a teacher, a friend, but what do I as an individual want for my life? And what's what am I going to do to pivot or make these transitions successful for myself? And I think men and women alike definitely struggle with kind of navigating that transition period. Yeah, we've talked about this, I think, um, before in that We'll ask some clients, what is it that you truly want? What is even what is it that you like to do? And many of them have, they'll look at us like they've never considered the question before. Um, and I think that that's really, it gives them such an opportunity to, to really start reflecting and thinking about what it is that they want, which is one of the most important questions that we can ask. 
And I think we also, we, we have to balance that with this idea of, well, if I do that, then I'm deemed selfish or I'm acting selfishly by choosing to do what it is that I want rather than what it is that others are expecting of me. But it's such a profound question to be asked. And it's a really integral part of the work that I do with clients. I love that. Tony, when I've asked clients that sometimes they will physically like sit back in their seat and I can see this physical contemplation or reflection of like, wow, it's a, a kind of a powerful moment for them. And they feel very empowered to know that they have that control and they are able to take on that self-responsibility and make those decisions. So I think all of these things just play a role in how we think about our mental health and how we, we treat it. But why do you think mental health is so hard to talk about? Like, What do you think in general makes it hard and specifically for males? You know, that's an interesting question. I I guess (laughs) because I am surrounded constantly with other mental health professionals, I don't really experience it on a personal level. All we do is talk about mental health, right? (laughs) Um, I spend my life, you know, surrounded by professionals um, in our practice and colleagues outside of it, in which this is sort of a normal part of the dialogue that I have. And I think that's such a blessing, right? I really can't imagine life where... You know, I personally felt the stigma of mental health. Um, I know how hard life is, how challenging it can be. So to not have that space or that opportunity to openly converse and dialogue about mental health, I imagine that that's really, really difficult. Obviously, I'm aware that that's the case for most people. And it really saddens me because it shouldn't be. We need to have open and honest and vulnerable conversations with our friends, with our families, with our parents, with our kids about mental health, because something that's absolutely universal in this world is suffering. I think that's one of the most profound insights that I've experienced as a mental health professional is that universality of suffering. So I think we have to start there. That's that's where the empathy comes from. That's where the understanding comes from, that every person that we see, every person that we know, every person that we drive along the highway with is suffering in some way. And I think if we can if we can realize that and if we can walk with that understanding, um, we're going to be a much more empathetic place. We're going to be a much more understanding and compassionate race if we just realize that truth. So I think that we need to open it up. Why is it so difficult to talk about? Well, I think it's because we have to allow ourselves to be vulnerable to do so. And when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, we open ourselves up to risk, right? When we open ourselves up, we don't just open ourselves up to the good. We also open up ourselves to the criticism, to the judgment, to the harsh reactions that people may have if and when we do. So to, you know, to sum it up, I think why it's so difficult to talk about is because we have to allow ourselves to be vulnerable to talk about it. I really like the part you say about talking about mental health with our friends and family, because I can think of um, really both females and males in my own friend group and family who were like, oh, it's so great you help people. And I'm thinking we are all people. We all have mental health and we all need help. So I just think that the stigma really needs to be reduced for everyone. But, you know, notably males, too. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think if we could do that, right, if we were more of an open society and had more open family systems, we would 
certainly see a decrease in sort of the, the crisis level mental health issues that we are struggling with. I often see within families, you know, especially as a therapist and working with adolescents is that parents will oftentimes, you know, metaphorically or even literally drop their teenage sons off at my office. And really the, the message is, you know, fix them, right? Rather than talk about it within the system itself, we're just going to get this outside professional to do it for us. As a therapist, as a clinician, I really have to work against that to engage with the parents and let them, you know, help them understand that this is not necessarily just an individual issue, that this oftentimes is a system issue and that we need to work within that system. And the first part of that is opening up the dialogue within that family to start talking with one another about more than just the logistics of the family. You know, so many families that I talk with, so many couples that I talk with too, the bulk of their conversation tends to be around logistics, right? The when and the where and the how. And that doesn't leave a lot of opportunity for real deep connection and conversation around, you know, what's what these what individuals within that system are actually struggling with. Um, we need to be opening up that dialogue within our families first. And I always start there. We start at the individual, we start at the family, and we can see profound change if we if we can get those things in order. Tony, I think you kind of answered my next question already a little bit, but hitting it in the core, right? We want to try to find where the spots are, we can really make the most difference. And I think it does. It comes down to the family and the people we're around the most and them being open to us being vulnerable. So Tony, when it comes to mental health, how can we help? And when I say we, I mean like as mental health professionals, but maybe more importantly, our listeners, how can we help men feel like they have a voice and break that stigma? I think that we, I think partly, you know, you guys are, that this is what you're trying to do by having this podcast mm-hmm. and just having more conversations like this um, around mental health and specifically mental health in males is a good place to start. We really do need to break down this idea that, you know, there is only a certain way, the right way to be a man, right? And that is mm-hmm. sort of the traditional cliches of the strong, silent type or men that always, you know, have their emotions in check. We've seen the, you know, the dramatic consequences in our society of teaching men to shut down their emotions. So we need to start first by opening up the conversation a little bit. And like I said before, I think that really starts with the family. We have to start having conversations with our children, especially our male children, our young boys, um, to teach them the language of emotion. We have to be able to put words to what it is that we're feeling. And the only way to do that is by talking to them about it. So I have a son. He's only nine months at this point. But it really is my goal, my intention when he does, when he gets a little bit older to really sit him down and start to have those sorts of conversation. What are you feeling right now? Right. Where do you feel it in your body? What do you think may be causing you to feel this way, right? We, especially with kids, I think we have this way of shutting down any negative emotions. First, we label them as either positive or negative. If they're sad, if they're angry, if they're nervous, if they're acting out, it's our, um, you know, the only way I think we as parents know how to deal with it is to shut it down or distract or to punish whatever it might be. Right. Rather than actually engaging with them to help us and them understand 
what it is that they're actually experiencing, right? And not to get rid of the emotion, but to understand it, to be able to process it, and then to be able to deal with it. I obviously want young men to be able to deal with their emotions. I want them to be in control of their emotions. But sometimes I think we use that synonymously with shutting it down, shutting those emotions down, right? Just ignoring them or pushing them away. Mm -hmm. That's not how we deal with our emotions. And I think teaching young men how to actually manage emotions in an appropriate way, in a healthy way, rather than just averting or shutting it down is the way that we best, that's how we best break this stigma and give men a voice in mental health. I love that you said that. And I kind of want to touch on one of the first points you made where you were talking about how, you know, we raise men that they have to fit in these societal norms, right? Within these roles. And if you think about it on the contrary for women, right? Right now we, as a society are supporting them and stepping outside of their barriers, stepping outside of what was identified as a woman's role in a relationship. And so if we can do that for women, we need to do that for men as well, right? So if they want to be that stay-at-home person or if they want to be a therapist, they want to be more emotion-focused and nurturing than strong and financially the you know, leader of the family, then let's have those conversations. Let's break those stigmas and let's foster growth so that there can be more diversity and people living better qualities of life and more true to themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I agree completely. We are... I think we've done a pretty good job. Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of work to do to break those gender roles and those stereotypes for women. And I think the same needs to happen for men. I think the conversation is happening less often, less attention is given to it. But I do think that it is essential that we do so. So, Tony, what are some of the main takeaways for our listeners when it comes to male mental health? Well, I think the first takeaway for me would be that, you know, like I've said many times today, that the change needs to occur first within the family system. Um, We need to start opening up our systems, um, our families, especially with our young children, um, to have these emotional conversations, to be able to teach them the language of mental health. And that needs to start at a really young age. So I think that would be the first. The second would be for, for any men that are looking for mental health services, I just want them to know that there are resources available to them. Um, We talked a little bit at the beginning about, you know, me being a male therapist has turned into a little bit of a a niche, right? And that most of us, you know, when we are searching for a therapist may have a hard time finding those male therapists, but I want you to know that they are out there. But I also want to say this, it is not a requirement by any means for men to only be seeking men um, when they're seeking mental health professionals. A tremendous amount of good work can be done with a therapist. It really is just all about the fit. And that is not dependent on whether or not your therapist is a man. So I want to let them know that also that it really is an act of courage to reach out and ask for help. We as men should not need to wait until it gets to a point when our loved ones tell us that we have to seek therapy, whether that be our parents or our spouses or our employer or a court. When we are in need of help, I do believe it is our responsibility to ask for it, to seek it out. And it doesn't necessarily have to be with a professional. It certainly can be. But like we've said also today, we need to be able to reach out to those around us, our friends, our family, our partners, and let them know that we're struggling. 
And I think that's where it starts. We have to open up that conversation with those closest with us. So those would be the main takeaways that I would I would like to put out there today. Yeah, Tony, those are perfect. And we just want to thank you for opening up this conversation with us today. You know, as we've said multiple times, we want to break that stigma. And I hope that this conversation is a way we can start doing that to address male mental health because it is important. Yes. Thanks, Tony. You gave a really great perspective on this topic and I think it can help a lot of our listeners. This was a great discussion, I think. And I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us again this week. Um, We hope you enjoyed all of this episode and everything that we went over in regards to males and mental health. I'm hoping that we were able to foster communication on men and their struggles in the mental health world, kind of what that looks like. So for next week, we are going to talk about what comes with having a parent or a family member or just a really close to loved one with a mental health disorder. We're super excited about that episode. Thanks so much for joining us today and have a great week. Bye. Bye. Thank you guys.